0: This paper comes with a slight health warning that comes uh, with the kind of job of being head of department that, that Elizabeth just mentioned, because I'm more used to sitting and looking at spreadsheets than I am to engaging with intellectual matters. But hopefully, I'll be able to make a smooth transition from one to the other, um, especially since this has to do with money. Um, so, first of all, I must just acknowledge the title, which I actually stole from a book by Shirley Ardner, who I see is here. Um, so, acknowledgements. Hopefully that will kind of take care of any plagiarism accusations. So, um, and again, the, my title has got to do with indebtedness. Now, people might think I'm sort of jumping on a bandwagon because, of course, the whole financial credit crunch, et cetera, has become major news in, in the rest of the world. But indeed, in South Africa, um, the, the credit crunch and the, and the sort of fears going along with that predated um, the credit crunch in the rest of the world and indeed the moral panic around that credit crunch by quite some time. Um, now, in a manner that's classically South African, yet recognizably global, proposed solutions to this reveal a strong market-driven orientation combined with attempts at regulation by both state and society Both the supply of and the demand for credit received attention. So human rights and civil society organizations strove to curb demand by teaching budgeting skills, implying that if people tightened their belts, stopped spending money on the lottery, and learned to live within their means, everything would be fine. But at the same time, a new piece of legislation, the National Credit Act, was passed. It was debated in Parliament over the course of almost a decade, with a lot of input from civil society organizations, trade unions, churches, and the like. But only effective as from 2007, so it took quite some time, and it aimed to control supply by curbing reckless lending, in quotes. So proposals were formulated to clip the wings of banks, clothing and especially furniture stores, of which more later. Also the recently proliferating micro-lenders of a formal type, but even more, and totally ineffectively, um, illegal loan sharks or machonises, while offering debt counselling to the victims of these lenders. Now, all of this was initially generated out of an impetus to uh, overcome the inequities of the past in South Africa and to curb the worst excesses of particular companies and corporations, especially those that target people at the lower end of the spectrum, and particularly, as I said, furniture stores selling items on high purchase. So if we ask who these measures were intended to benefit on the demand side, the answer was African consumers in townships and rural areas. The subtext is the idea that black people formerly excluded from being able to use financial institutions, but all of a sudden at the moments of democracy in 1994, belatedly invited to the party and soon overborrowing, now needed to be protected both from lenders' rapacity and from their own lack of acumen. But there was another strand added to this narrative, because it turned out in the 1990s that those incurring most debt were actually earners, not the poorest of the poor, They seem to be drawn predominantly from the class known as the Black Diamonds, the upwardly mobile and fast-growing African middle class, which in 2007 was reported to have grown by 30% in just a year, over a year. So seen more broadly, and ignoring for the moment this particular strand to the story, the legislation and the forces and pressures which underpinned it we're, fast of, we're part of a vast machinery of social reform and transition. But as in other transitional settings, complex ties here link the state and its legal arrangements to various interests in the capital cooperative world and also to members of the public, sometimes in contradictory ways, making for a certain stickiness. So a post emancipatory society, even though there might be the best intentions, often finds itself um, unable to actualize these reforms in their totality. But the interesting thing in South Africa was that in the past, this is a country where the denial or the transgression of rights of various kinds was always quick to excite or provoke a concerted response. And this remains the case. So over the last few years, there have been huge numbers of protests aimed at problems of service delivery. Or in 2010, there was a huge nationwide public sector strike by Kasatu, the um, country's umbrella trade union body, and you might have heard about it, It came straight after the sort of miracle of the 2010 World Cup. Most of these strikes, you'll notice, were directed at the state, either as employer or provider. But the nationwide problem of indebtedness, which had been increasingly decried over the course of a decade, and indeed a decade and a half, has never been the subject of protest action, which is in some ways not surprising because debt is considered a solitary problem, relates to the individualized character of upward mobility and to the competitiveness and envy that is said to go along with this. And its proposed solutions also atomize. You've got debt counsellors, ombudsmen, consumer columns and so on, um, but people are always aided as individuals and there's no sort of collective action. So my conundrum when starting to research this was How do you conceptualize and and deal anthropologically with consumer rights, Um, something about which anthropology has not had that much to say, whereas human or citizen rights have been much more a focus of of attention? Okay, so the broader political economic context of South Africa is one that is quite probably well known to some of you, and if you know much about post-socialist Europe, you'll understand that there's a lot of connections there. Um, There's a lot of harking after an earlier period with a state corporate economy, Um, a former sort of large-scale employment for all, partly because of the protectionist nature of that economy, and the effectiveness of an authoritarian state, which delivered some welfare, although in South Africa obviously very skewed and racially kind of discriminatory. Whereas now, and partly this is the context that makes people harken back in that way, you've got the effects of liberalisation, huge job losses, the dissolution of social fabric, hugely increased inequality, and lots of new calls by... State planners of various kinds for people to rely on themselves and and get a job, or rather find a job, make yourself a job, all very reminiscent of some things that we've been hearing about here quite recently. But this is all combined with, and this is perhaps quite unusual, uh, the existence of what's been called a distributional or redistributive regime. So um, people have sort of tried to conceptualize this in different ways, and people like. Jim Ferguson, who's written quite a bit recently, especially about South Africa, uh, tends to think about this as a neoliberal type of arrangement in totality, and even, you know, even the existence of redistribution he regards as, as sort of part of this. But others have called for a slightly more uh, nuanced description of how this actually operates. And what I'm trying to do here is to take on board some of the things Jim Ferguson talks about, including the fact that there's a huge number of welfare payments, that there's a lot of dependence on these welfare payments, um, but that these welfare payments don't necessarily result in the creation of some sort of um, social belonging, but rather seem simply to continue individualizing people. What I want to do is to extend the analysis to include some of these middle-income groups, some of these recipients of state salaries, alongside the poorest, And to explore how these salaries themselves become part of a distributional regime, but largely through the intermediation of loan sharks, who could be regarded in many ways as quite quintessentially neoliberal, informal, and a whole range of other things like that. So a little word on formality and informality, um, and just drawing on a few authors here, so useful analyses of other settings, particularly West Africa or Atlantic Africa, by Jane Geyer, give some insight into the nature of economic transitions in a post-transitional society, sorry, transactions, in a post-transitional society. Jane Geyer emphasizes the fragmented character of economic arrangements in that particular setting. She shows how, quote, neoliberal measures have led to a kind of piecemeal formalization of the economy. Formalization is plural rather than singular. Keith Hart goes further in his book that he's just um, published called The Human Economy and says, the whole world economy has now become informal, but whether you use one or other of these terminologies, I'm not sure which is most appropriate, what what these writings in some sense draw attention to is the limited usefulness of thinking of dichotomies which counterpose formal and informal economic arrangements, instead highlighting the interpenetration of the two, and I'm going to try and draw some of this out. But it's also useful to think back to the classic piece, as I regarded, by Bloch and Parry, where they explore how in particular transactional orders social actors may convert shorter term, more apparently uh, formal economic arrangements, i.e. the kind which you transact in a shop, um, into longer term, more moral ones. And in their case, again, the result's always patchy and plural. There's never a complete movement towards formality. What's particularly... Um, Interesting here is Gaia talks about how the fact, uh, the reliance on personalized relationships in order to conduct economic transactions may be less a discretionary choice between less and more moral outcomes, which is rather the feeling you get from Bloch and Parry's book, and more a result of the fact that, quote, social structure is more dispersed and disconnected with less capacity for collective action in sanctioning malfeasance. And that is exactly the kind of thing that applies in attempt to tackle the indebtedness problem in South Africa. Now, it's particularly hard to analyse relationships of indebtedness and or debt credit, in these kinds of anthropological terms, because if you think about it, the quintessential debt credit relationship in the in the anthropological classics was one which connected people with their in-laws. Um, this was a long-term relationship, and indeed the fact that you owed your in-laws for virtually a lifetime, if not longer is what made it one of these so-called long-term morally imbued sort of connections. And in in fact, one of the classics of anthropology came from South Africa, which described this very kind of relationship. I'm thinking here about the work of Eileen and Jack Cricker in 1943. And their statements about the nature of Lobola, or actually Bohadi in their book, uh, or Bride Wealth, was echoed by one of the people I spoke to just two years ago, showing that this ideal still holds true. And he talked about the fact that um, when you get married, you should never pay the whole amount because you are in debt. You owe the family of your wife. And ultimately, that family might even allow you to have children. And when your first daughter gets married, you are paid um, bride price for that daughter. You will then use those cattle to pay your in-laws. So it's a classic vision of you know, people interconnected together in, in terms of these long-term feelings of commitment and so on. Now, I'm not really claiming here that this has not changed. Of course, bride wealth has long been commodified, but there's still a kind of conceptualization along these sorts of lines which says that indebted relationships or relationships of debt ought to be long-term, morally constituted ones. And um, I'm sort of problematizing that because it seems to me that in situations now where lots and lots of people are having to get into debt in a way which often they regard as quite morally problematic, and certainly the South African government regards it as morally problematic, this kind of assumption about long-term moral relationships being ones of long-term seem to be somehow overturned. However, um, it is the case that a prospective son-in-law, now suddenly faced with the need for a momentous cash payment from demanding indoors, because it has become commodified, will on occasion borrow either from formal financial institutions and sometimes from illegal money lenders in order to be able to meet his obligations. So he ends up in a kind of terrible conundrum. And as I'll show in the paper, it's not only marriage, but a set of other morally important imperatives relating to key points in the life cycle which necessitate this. But just to come back to that example and to use the terms of Bloch and Parry use, what was a long-term and morally-based arrangement becomes an equally long-term and interest-bearing but more formally exchange-based and impersonal one, except in the case of a loan shark, although even these loan sharks, as I'll show, use extraordinarily impersonal arrangements for um, recouping their money. So um, what's necessitated here is expenditure for which credit of a less personalised kind may be sought and granted. So what were previously and still are ideally conceptualised as moral transactions and long-term investments in social relations Um, have now acquired the additional feature that they require a prospective groom to be in hock either to the bank or to these informal loan sharks. Next section is called Credit Supply and Demand, Assumptions Questioned. The consequences for individuals and their personal finances of entering into relations of indebtedness without due consideration have generated great concern and been depicted in a uniformly negative light. Even if there's some confusion within policy circles about who these people are. In efforts made to tackle the demand side, the prevailing rhetoric points to over-indebted black consumers as the primary focus of concern. And this group remains at the forefront when state regulatory measures are implemented. Now, a note here is required on the recent proliferation of marketing surveys in South Africa. Capitalist enterprise has begun to profile consumers in a way that I have never ever seen in any other place, Enabling those in a wide range of settings to be reached and targeted. And all of a sudden, a thing has come into existence, and I don't know whether these exist anywhere else. They are called LSMs. Anyone heard of an LSM? It means a living standard measure. And the population has been diced into 10 different LSMs. So business people and marketers continually make reference to these. And so, loan well, not loan sharks, but sort of lenders of various kinds always talk about which particular segment of these they are involved in, in, in looking at. It's ironic here because previously the state was the agent of of actually categorizing the population into racially divided segments. Now it's corporations and smaller businesses who pigeonhole people in this kind of manner. Anyway, what one economist writing about this discovered was that, and this was from a survey, um, that the people in the middle of a scale, somewhere in the middle of this LSM sort of chart... Um, were the ones that are getting into debt most of all. And he said, most likely because this is where full-time employed workers enter the labor market. Because these workers earn a regular salary, this is very important, they qualify for credit. But binding expenditure constraints possibly places pressure on them to borrow at a level that is unsustainable. And there we have the heart of the issue I'm addressing here. Such surveys, in fact, showed that race was not a defining feature. They're talking about people right across the divide. But its unsimilar surveys mark the extent to which it is Salaried workers, especially the black African recipients of state salaries, and this is a new group to, to become civil servants, nurses, teachers, policemen, etc., or middle to low level employees in state-owned enterprises, which are very big in South Africa, it is these people whose problem borrowing is actually of most concern, since members of this group currently have the biggest electoral and political influence. Now just a kind of slightly side issue here, because this is not really what the paper is mainly about, but If anxiety about problem borrowing was focused on the newly enfranchised members of South Africa's public service, the attempted regulation of the supply side focused in particular on a group who had just been thrown out of that public service. That is, a group of Afrikaans, speaking white people, previously in a sort of protected employment to a large extent, who had no option really, and I'm putting things rather simply here, but to go out and establish small-scale lending enterprises and I've got a beautiful graph showing how there was virtually no lending enterprise of this kind at the beginning of the 90s and they just sort of went up in a vast great big blue line. This had to do with the liberalizing of credit provision and there was a particular clause which, in a usury act which was suddenly lifted in 1992 and it meant that anybody could lend money as long as it was under 6,000 rand, that is 600 pounds, and as long as you were going to be repaying it over less than 36 months, there was no cap on the interest rate at all. So these People entered the markets and became micro lenders, and some of them became millionaires virtually overnight, all because of the fortune to be made at the bottom of the pyramid, which we've once heard about in other settings. Um, But I'm not going to talk so much about these people. Here in this paper, I'm going to talk more about the informal loan sharks, the illegal loan sharks, because The sort of white African civil servants who became micro-lenders were, in fact, to some degree effectively regulated um, by this National Credit Act, but the other loan sharks, especially black ones, were not, and it's their activities that I'm mainly focusing on here. So these measures deployed to tackle the indebtedness problem, although they had some validity, and indeed the surveys on which they are based are definitely accurate, but there are some flawed assumptions in here, and some of these threaten to derail the very solutions proposed. They infer that if people are better informed that they behave in a more rational manner, a more modern one, they also presuppose that people could be um, easily categorized into borrowers and lenders with a separate regulatory strategy for each, whereas in fact, they're interdependent and mutually reinforcing. And they tend to ignore the fact that illegal and unregistered lending practices which have been in place for probably a century or more are in fact newly intensifying and not simply continuing. So there are a set of assumptions like this which I'm going to briefly outline and and, and sort of tackle and my critical examination of repudiation of them or at least qualifying of them is based on research in two main locations. A village called Pseudonomically um, pseudonymically, in Palahook and in Pumalanga near the Kruger Park, and a neighborhood in Soweto, as well as on some interviews with members of the new managerial and sub-managerial class in South Africa's public service. So the first assumption is the separation of borrower from lender. So the attempted regulation of the credit market by this new act, and this, um, as I say, was augmented by the new preoccupation with consumer surveys, presupposes that South African consumers can be subdivided into neatly demarcated categories and that as long as you can understand each of these segments, you'll be able to create a better policy for each one. Um, So one aspect of this tendency to neatly divide is to assume that maverick micro-lenders who charge too much interest, that includes the ones I described to you who recently got thrown out of the public service, but shading at one end into the informal money lenders or machonisas, are a definable group that can be distinguished from those who borrow from them. Now, I'll outline a little bit of a continuum here and show that although there's some truth in this, it's also ignoring areas of informal lending where the two kind of categories merge. So if we imagine a continuum, and this is just really sort of heuristic purposes that I put it this way, you've got big loan sharks at one end. They typically lend amounts of about 1,000 rand, that is about 100 pounds, They charge interest at 50% per month, and the way that they operate um, is a way which many people that I've described this to find virtually impossible to get their head around, but it is a way which renders it completely unnecessary to go and break people's knees with with baseball bats because they lend to people who have salaries, who are paid state salaries, and the way that they secure the loans is to take away your ATM card and your ID book Um, At the end of the month, they will go to the ATM machine, and they will put your card in, and they will take out what they are owed, which is the amount plus 50%, and then they will give you back your ATM card, and you will be able to use it, but you will then virtually always start and, and take out another loan, because you are now operating with, let's call it 50 pounds less than what you had last month. So it's a kind of cycle. But you don't really need to go and break anyone's knees with a baseball bat, because you have the ATM card The reason why you have the ID book is because in the past people would just go and get a different ATM card and cancel the old one. So the loan sharks soon got very wise to that one. Okay, and there's basically these loan sharks. I've never yet managed to actually interview one of them despite incredible efforts on my part. But a lot of them are combining their their operations in this kind of sphere with themselves being public servants or operating in a variety of sort of shop owning or, or other lending businesses. Nothing particularly unusual about them. Um, at the other end of the continuum, you might place lo- small-time loan sharks, one that I did manage to interview, earning, you know, lending amounts much less, also charging much less interest, and usually targeting, once again, people who are be- paid by the state, but usually grant recipients, so much smaller fry. Not really in competition with the bigger loan sharks, but... Seen in rational terms, you could think of his products as being distinct from theirs and aimed at a different market. But positioned somewhere along the scale, what I discovered was a wide range of small lenders throughout urban townships or smaller-scale town settings in the former homelands. And just how ubiquitous these were became evident to me when I went and spoke to a young woman who lives in a place called Orange Farm. And she's a university student at the University of Pretoria, and I was asking her if she could help me get an interview with a loan shark. She came back a few days later and revealed to me her incredible amazement that her own mother was in fact a loan shark, which she had never previously known. Um, But of course, a very small-scale one, you know, just lending out a bit of money here and there. Um, Now, such lenders are, as I said, ubiquitous. They operate in some sense beyond the system, but they're also quite aware that their activities are illegal. However, there's a certain irony because they, as fairly poor people, are subject to the state's and NGOs attempts to get everybody banked. Now they want to become banked, but they realise that a lot of their money is is illegally made, so they don't know how to become banked. And they went and spoke to an NGO worker that I that I um, interviewed, who was continu- they were continually asking her, how can we bank our money without the state recognising that we're making our money illegally? So you've got some interesting conundrums going on there. Now probably most confusingly combining the activities in borrower and lender, and this is where the Shirley Ardner book comes in, there are credit-granting savings clubs, and these are known in the literature, which is full of acronyms, as ASCRAS, Accumulated Savings and Credit Associations. Now, I, before I went to the field, started assuming that these kinds of things must be gradually dying out. But in fact, far from it. They seem to be on the the rise. Um, The way that these operate is that, in contrast to the normal sort of, what, are they, what do you call them? Rotating credit association, um, where everybody sort of puts in a certain amount and everyone takes it in turn to get the full amount at the end of the month. These ones, they get you, they get a certain member to take the full amount, but that member is then obliged to go and lend out the money at interest, for 30% interest, and bring back um, the 30% interest at, at the end of the month. So... These these are very ubiquitous in in a whole variety of settings. And obviously in these cases the people are both borrowers and lenders in, in, in one sort of particular... Well, at different times, but they are both the same thing. So from these kinds of variety of types of informal lending, you can see that you can't really separate the two kinds of people from each other. Now this blurring is widely recognized in the literature on informal financial arrangements by people like Parker, Shipton, Jane, Geyer, and others... It's often assumed to apply only among the poor and marginalised. What I'm trying to show here is that this now prevails increasingly among the upwardly mobile and civil servants in particular. The National Credit Act has been largely powerless in the face of informal money lending and associated informal credit arrangements. Although the existence of the Act and its associated rhetoric are widely known, its workings are said not to have reached the low or the townships, even where those involved are from the new middle class or especially when where those involved from the new middle class especially drawn from civil servants next section is called the novelty of consumer credit so there's a second key assumption here and this is concerned more with the lending practices of large corporations than with the newer micro lenders the assumption is that black consumers were precipitously introduced to financial institutions and formal credit at the moments of democracy which is when south africa's economy liberalized and that because they were financially illiterate they were powerless, powerless at the hands of these predatory institutions, especially as I said for furniture shops but in fact, many have had a generation of or more sometimes several generations of exposure to credit um, often in its most rapacious form and the furniture shops are something else i 'll talk a little bit about the sharp practices that they that they practice um, what what they include is a terrible practice called garnishing. I don't know how many of you know this practice. I think it's quite widespread in America. Whereby a furniture shop working on high purchase, if a payment doesn't get made, can go to a magistrate's court and get a garnishing order placed on your account and immediately put your, put their hands into your account and take the money out. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of the practices used by these furniture shops have been kind of revealed as, as, as extremely dodgy. So a lot of the Consumers I'm talking about have already been exposed to these kinds of practices, to credit arrangements, but in their probably most unattractive um, version. And one such person was a teacher who founded a club of the kind I just described, that is a Askra. It was called Build Yourselves Relatives. The reason they started this club Uh, which they had started as a pure savings club, was because of the fact that they'd been burnt by one of these furniture stores. This one particular guy had bought some furniture. He'd had his bank account garnished at a cost of 2,000 rand. That's 200 pounds just for missing the repayment. That was in addition to the repayment. He contested it. The complaints led nowhere at all. So he and other members decided that they would try, in a sense, to withdraw from the formal credit sector and start this club Um, They still used their bank accounts as a repository for funds but not as a source of interest because they felt they could generate their own interest. So the aversion to the formal lending sector was an outcome of the distorted version of the market rooted in an earlier period. During this period, consumers were offered only particular restricted types of credit. At extortionate rates and under disadvantageous terms, something you might describe as an apartheid of credit, And it was these arrangements which caused consumers to distrust the formal system. And indeed, it was these kinds of arrangements that largely led to the National Credit Act, but only when they became really exacerbated during during the 90s. Next section, next assumption. Competitiveness, status, and secrecy. Closely linked to the assumption about the effects of the precipitous introduction of credit in the 90s is the one which says, Africans suddenly newly introduced to all this, um, have been introduced to pressures to consume, useless and unimported, unimportant luxury goods, and the idea that if only these could be curbed, frugality could prevail and people could start to live within their means. And one means to this ought to be classes in financial literacy and budgeting. And there are huge numbers of organisations teaching exactly these kinds of skills. Now again, there are some truths in this assumption. But it fails to recognise that many of the most important kinds of expenditure for this new middle class, glasses as the black diamonds, are not in fact frivolous, but rather do encompass investments now regarded as mandatory and ones that crop up at particular moments in the life cycle. And one of these is weddings, as I've already mentioned, or marriages more generally. Another one is funerals, which I won't talk about here. But a very important one is university education. I came across people who were ready to stay single in order to escape from the first, but none of them denied that the second had been essential to their own success and, and be, in becoming upwardly mobile. So young graduates I met were willing to remain single in order to escape the conspicuous consumption and long-term indebtedness associated with getting married, including bridewealth payments, but going without the much more expensive commodity of higher education would have been unthinkable. And there's a terrible irony here because for people in this particular sort of segment, being educated was crucial, but it was also the fact that the civil service had to be restocked virtually from from scratch at one particular moment in the 90s that it really helped them. So the next generation might get educated, but they might not indeed walk into jobs nearly as easily. Now, I've got a little section in my paper talking a little bit about the sort of Problems of upward nobility, the so-called competition arising out of status anxiety, the associated fear of gossip, showing how it has a much longer history, and drawing on a novel that was written in the 80s called The Tiki Line Yuppie, um, which gives some insights into this happening way before democracy, the advent of democracy, and talking about this man who whose mother was quite a lowly person with sort of lowly social status who felt very ashamed, and when suddenly her son invested in a TV, music system, etc., she suddenly felt she could invite the neighbours home to her house. He also felt status anxiety because his impending marriage to a woman from a higher status group um, put him under huge pressure, and she puts him under pressure to buy wedding dresses, clothes, etc. So there's a a very different kind of illustration of these themes of competition, shame, anxiety, etc., in this particular um, example. And there are quite a lot of statements that I heard from people which kind of endorse this idea that people do feel pressured by social competition, etc., to abandon prudence and frugality and spend money that they've not earned and don't really possess. People are just quick to get things without calculating the costs in one person, um, and so on. Now, although that's true to some degree, I, I also found quite interesting the way in which people, although they decried in abstract terms the horrors of indebtedness that consumerism, especially new consumerism associated with being a member of the new middle class, might involve, they also then displayed a lot of sage and prudent financial acumen in their own lives. And in particular, if people like this had taken out personal loans, these were usually to pay for their own or their children's education not because they yielded to the pressures of competition about whether you had a, a good sofa or a nice set of shoes or, or, or a car. Just one little example here, Mrs. Magubani. She, like her husband, is a waged employee of a state-owned enterprise, Spurnet, which is a transport company. Um, her husband, incidentally, is also a loan shark. She's a mother of several children of school-going age, of whom one is also at university, And she spoke with great frustration of the way she'd been bombarded with offers of store cards, insurance deals, free airtime, etc., etc. She pointed out how she hadn't actually yielded to any of these, but some of the people she knew would take a card and simply swipe it in order to buy peanut butter. And she said, this is something you should never do. You should only buy such items for cash. She instead had chosen a prudent strategy of investing in education of her own children. But in this case, it was actually this priority that got her in over her head, because she talked in this particular case about, you know, quite a sad story, about a salesman who'd persuaded her to buy some books on mass literacy on higher purchase. Um, They bought them, they almost completed their payments, then suddenly the debit orders mysteriously ceased, only to recommence some few years later, and suddenly they were told that they owed 5,000 rand, 500 pounds. So, in this case, it was one of the more far sighted expenditures, the kind which, in Bloch and Parry's terms, would represent an investment in the long term, which had the potential to land people in unsustainable levels of debt. In their attempts to rectify the situation, such people, although not her particularly, were often forced into further indebtedness at the hands of loan sharks. And um, on this point, the major difference between this and the previous generation, and the, the biggest single expenditure making credit a necessity, was that most informants I spoke to in Pomalanga and Soweto had not had any further or higher education themselves, but virtually all now felt it was mandatory to send three or four children to higher education. And so one, for example, one school teacher in the low Fault um, after having educated two of her children, when the third one had to be educated, she finally approached a loan shark. She had exhausted all other formal sources of credit, and in addition to her loans from these sources, she then went and tapped into this loan shark as a source of of credit to send the next child to university. So in sum, then, there's a paradoxical combination here in which general profligacy is acknowledged and condemned, but it's disavowed in particular cases. A man in well-paid government employment spoke of what he saw as a skewed value system, that led his cousins to spend huge amounts on prestige items like expensive cars while continuing to live crammed together in small township house. He said that he claimed to prefer a more modest style of living. His friends had mocked him for continuing to drive an old Toyota rather than buying a Mercedes. He wistfully pointed out the particular pressure to spend was most intensely exerted by prospective marriage partners, And he had more or less resigned himself to steering clear, at least in the short term, of marriage for precisely this this reason. So, in an attempt to remain free of formal, impersonal debt bondage, he would here be steering clear of long term moral connections that normally ought to connect one to one's in laws. Final assumption I'm going to tackle The, the solution, colon, small scale independent enterprise. Alongside frugality and belt tightening, the central rhetoric advocated as a means to avoid indebtedness is that people should earn their own money, preferably through individual initiative and enterprise. This is a very familiar refrain from a variety of neoliberal settings. And this is one means through which the demand side of the equation is often tackled. Individuals are enjoined to start a small business, make money, become productive members of society independent of the state, this, of course, denies, but is perhaps also aimed at transforming the fact that many of the people in this upwardly mobile group—that is, many black diamonds—are actually in state employee. So it's, it's a way of trying to draw people away from that, but also to make sure that people don't get into debt. Because if they make their money not from other people, but rather from—well, if they make their money not not by lending to other people, then they will become—sorry, um, not by borrowing from other people—they will become sort of independent. But there are quite a lot of obstacles to achieving and maintaining the status of an upwardly mobile yuppie. These obstacles often undermine the business opportunities that might otherwise exist. And in some cases, because of this, people turn instead to money lending, which is one of the most reliable sources of income for small-scale entrepreneurs. So even this injunction to become an entrepreneur can lead people into money lending anyway. One obstacle is the sheer tenuousness of making a living that relies on the sale of and the willingness of other equity mobile people to buy precisely these new financial goods, services, credit, and financial products. So there's a very good illustration, which is a whole range of people who are making their living from selling insurance. A lot of people in the townships have started buying insurance, but they're also likely to cancel their policies at a moment's notice when times are tough. And this inconstancy not only has disastrous effects for them, perhaps, but also and particularly for the middlemen who are selling insurance. So one of the debt counsellors that I spoke to at one stage told me that most of her indebted sort of customers were, in fact, insurance salesmen who'd bought cars and various other things like that. But when their clients cancelled their insurance policies, they now ran out of money, and they, of course, had to go and borrow money from loan sharks. So hence they were seeking debt counselling. There's a second obstacle to making a living as an entrepreneur as well, and this is linked to the skewed history of credit, and also to the skewed history of property ownership, which obtained before the advent of democracy in 1994, and also to the way in which it was suddenly unleashed thereafter, that is, in 1994. And what I'm trying to show here is the sort of Overdetermined and circular character, which makes it so hard really to become a black diamond. A black diamond, in, some, in many ways, is just a sort of figment of everyone's imagination, something which people would like to become, but it's really hard. Now, in this particular case that I'm going to tell you about, um, what, what existed in South Africa was a set of relationships to property and to ownership which have almost overdetermined the continuation of a separate or second economy. Before that date, before 1994, the history of state-provided housing in African areas meant that property sales were unviable. Partly because it was hard for Africans to get mortgages, but also because um, African housing was in fact ring-fenced. For a long time it was rented, not owned, and it was generally kept beyond the reach of the market completely. So after this date, as aspirant homeowners scramble to get on the property ladder, after after having initially restricted their borrowing to things like buying furniture and so on, this happened very precipitously and was often bound to end in disaster. And to illustrate this, I'll tell you the story of a guy called Frank Poole. So he was a Sowetan, is still in fact, and he really was going to make a living out of being an entrepreneur. He didn't actually have a, a job in the civil service. He was trying to set up a business in real estate And what he decided to do was to start a business buying property in formerly white areas just on the edge of Soweto, which a lot of these new yuppies were trying to move into. So what he discovered is that a number of townhouses in these sort of peripheral areas to Soweto were being sold off in the early 2000s. And in fact, he was buying them on auction. Now, why why were they being sold off? It was because of the way in which the newly salaried classes during the late 1990s, that is the new Black Diamonds, had suddenly wanted to become upwardly mobile and had all gone and bought houses in this area, but of course they had got in over their heads and their new houses had been repossessed. People don't know what it's like buying a house, he said. They think because I'm working at the SABC, that is the Broadcasting Corporation, another state employer, I will afford this house. But of course many of them couldn't, and so they sold them off precipitously, and he started buying them up and thought he would make a living from reselling these houses. His enterprise originally seemed to have considerable promise, um, but he soon in turn encountered problems. Because the indebtedness of an initial swathe of African house buyers had originally meant the ready availability of repossessed townhouses, but problems of debt had now worked their way through the system, there were now fewer potential buyers in a second swathe looking for townhouses, and he was stuck with several houses that he was not able to sell. African buyers had no further lines of credit, while white buyers no longer wanted to live in the area. And then, in a sort of further twist to the story, he decided to switch instead to trying to buy houses in Soweto and sell them. These were the ring-fenced houses I mentioned earlier. But there were problems here, because what often happened was that um, people had, had families had rented these houses over several generations... The state, having initially led them to people, then allowed people to buy their houses, but usually at very, very minimal cost. Certain people had then gone and got into debt. They'd remortgaged and they decided to build, a, a, let's say, a garage and another room onto their house. And as a result of that, their houses were then repossessed. Now, this guy, Frank Pule, was taking advantage of this opportunity to buy up some of these houses and try and resell them to make a living. But what he discovered was that there was a kind of um, vision of property within Suweto, whereby a family house should never be sold. So even though he technically had the title deeds to one of these houses, he found that there were vigilantes sort of marching up and down outside the door, or in fact doing the toy toy, which some of you may know, which is a kind of very militant style of dancing. And he was unable to sell on these houses. So once again, there was a certain kind of ring fencing of property which made it impossible for an entrepreneur to come in and become one of these sort you of know, dazzling new entrepreneurs. It's puzzling that while communal activism, or at least vigilantism, was here evident in defense of the rights of former beneficiaries of apartheid's skewed form of state welfare, the kind that provided houses, no similarly communal defense of the rights of post-apartheid's present-day beneficiaries of a different type of state patronage, that is, public service salaries, is in evidence. So where state-provided houses were effectively ring-fenced by community refusal to envisage their being bought and sold on the open market, state salaries, supposedly a sign of political freedom on the part of those now newly employed in the public service, were not. Instead, any recipient of a state salary was fair game. To money lenders, to credit providers of all kinds, both the informal loan sharks the furniture stores, and other unscrupulous corporations to whom many Africans had earlier been exposed, from which those able to escape had been warned off, but to which many remained vulnerable. So, in other words, any kind of activity which tried to go in for money-making in a manner that was not all about recruiting people in a skewed version of Gaia's wealth in people um, was pretty much few and far between and doomed to failure, as far as I could see. So just to... A few comments on this whole phenomenon of making money from nothing, or the money-go-round. So as I mentioned earlier, market surveys show that it's generally salaried or waged people in middle-income brackets who've been the most liable to indebtedness. One explanation for this is that credit providers across the board, whether they're formal or informal, are willing to lend only to those who have a regular income. Thus, they don't expose themselves unduly or at all to the risk of non-repayments, Um, If you want to take out a loan to buy a piece of furniture, you need to have a pay slip showing that you are employed, whereas in the case of a loan shark, they simply take your ATM card. But what the surveys less often reveal, since this is happening below the radar, is that the lenders to whom these salaried people are indebted are often salaried people too. And there are people, as I said before, who are loan sharks that are also receiving salaries. So It's kind of puzzling to me, and it was, especially when I was doing my research, what it would be that would separate a person, given that, let's say, two teachers in this rural area were both receiving a state salary, what would turn one of them into a borrower and the other one into a lender? I tried to find out the answer to this, and the closest I could come was the idea that at a certain point, if a family underwent some kind of life cycle crisis, like either needing to get married, which could be a crisis of sorts, or otherwise having to send a child to university, this might be the thing tipping a person over from the one into the other. So this process of making money from nothing, and what I've called the money-go-round, um, it's not simply the case that money flows outwards from the state to the bank accounts of civil servants and grant recipients, and thereafter trickles further downwards and outwards to credit providers, both formal and informal. Things are more complicated, in that the most successful loan sharks or machonises include those who are themselves in state employ. They are, in effect, reinvesting their state salaries uh, in order to make these grow yet further. So here, the line between borrowers and lenders that's blurred in some arenas or in some senses hardens into a much more definite division between them and the extreme ends of the scale. And this, I think, might be one of the great unexplored reasons for the sharp inequalities that are said to characterize South African society. It is evident here that one needs a steady stream of income in order to either get into debt or conversely to procure the basis for growing and expanding an income based on other people's indebtedness. Right, I'm just going to skip to my conclusion. So my papers criticise some of the assumptions that underpin remedial or reform measures taken to deal with problems of indebtedness, focusing in particular on those arrangements which pertain to loans from informal moneylenders. These regulatory measures, for a variety of reasons, were scarcely effective. It is not simply that the law had not reached the low felt, but rather that informalization was intensifying as all manner of means were being devised to plunder the South African fiscus, I would say. The negative way in which debt and over-indebtedness is portrayed in post-1994 South Africa invites some comment here. Many have pointed out that this kind of approach seems to be a denial of the negotiability, the personal ties of relatedness, etc., which characterize debt relations in various settings that are marginal to mainstream capitalism. These kinds of ties are summarized in a recent paper by Guérin, Roux, and Servet. It's certainly true that some of the practices of financial informality that they describe for the poor are here percolating upwards. In my case, to affect or be drawn on by the newly becoming rich. But these authors nonetheless stress that there's a danger of idealizing or romanticizing such relationships and practices. In the case of the larger moneylenders who rely on the monthly banking of wages, credit relations have been irrevocably formalized in the sense that forms of social collateral like trust are no longer required. Instead, the whole system relies on the inexorable and unstoppable flow of money, mostly from the states and mostly into the bank accounts, that so many people are now enjoined to use. Efforts that might be previously have been put into strengthening the trust, which serves as loan collateral, here become unnecessary. A second point in relation to this it's stressed by many writers that debt and credit relationships are essential to the progress and growth of the economy. And you can range all the way from people like Niall Ferguson in his book, The Ascent of Money, through to sort of writers in a more Foucauldian vein, like Janet Reutemann, who talks about the productivity of debt. Now, borrowers invariably pointed to the fact that informal moneylenders are doing us a favor and that they themselves, the borrowers, being the petitioners, are the ones to blame. At the same time, though, the inexorable formalization of people's relationships to these big-time loan sharks um, does make for huge social and psychological damage, and the, the evidence was there to see. In this sense, unsustainable indebtedness does constitute what I would see as a definite harm, which seems to countermand the idea of the productivity of debt. So to sum up, the categories invented and surveys conducted by market researchers and advertisers cannot be assumed to reflect the nuanced reality of consumer experience or to expose in full the character of indebtedness, nor can solutions based on these stark figures be effective in solving this problem. Many who are assumed to have been plunged into debt with the advent of democracy had already been involved in relationships of debt over several generations of family history. Many who have achieved rapid upward mobility have a sober and prudent attitude to matters of investment and are all too aware of the need to save money where possible. Rather than needing financial literacy classes, they know about the kinds of things which might bring returns in the longer term, regarding education as primary among these. At the same time, however, the obstacles to moving up the ladder at a slow and steady pace are often virtually insurmountable. Property relationships continue to be ring-fenced. Most attempts to earn an income involve the kinds of strategies commonly described as rent-seeking. Lending is one such strategy often resorted to, but many lenders are borrowers too. All are scrabbling to access the steady strickle of funds that come from secure employment in the state. Under such circumstances, it is difficult to get off the money-go-round.